Hi everyone, uh, it's Paola Diana and this is Unleash the Game Changers. Today our guest is an incredible professor of psychiatry. He is the president of the Royal Society Medicine Society. He is the advisor in psychiatry of the British Army and is also the Regius Professor of Psychiatry at King's College, Sir Simon Wesley. Thank you for being here. Pleasure, at least I hope it'll be a pleasure. I really would like you to share with us your knowledge, that is incredible, I know, so maybe one hour is not enough, <laughs> but to share with us your journey through psychiatry and what are your focuses, you know? I know that it's chronic fatigue syndrome, well, it's lots of things, really. I mean, psychiatry is part of medicine, so in order to become a psychiatrist, you have to become a doctor. But like most people, when I decided to do medicine, I never thought of doing psychiatry at all. So you wanted to be a doctor and to do all the doctory things, you know, running around, saving lives and things like that, and I did that for a bit. But I'd, re I'd realised fairly early on, actually, that I came from a quite arts background, myself and my parents, who so didn't have any doctors in the family. My mother was a musician, my father was a linguist, and I suppose I was quite bookish, read quite a bit as a kid. Um, and you could probably then might have, even at that point, guessed I might end up in psychiatry because I was more on the arts, humanities side, and I used to write uh, stuff and things like that. So by the time I'd finished medical school and started doing proper medicine, I'd already decided, actually, I want to do psychiatry. How old were you? Oh, God. Um, I suppose when I started psychiatry, I was in my mid-20s. Okay. But I did two or three years, three years of cardiology and general medicine out of interest, excitement, and also to show I could do it. Because sometimes people sure. do say to psychiatrists, well, you just couldn't be a, quote, proper doctor. That's bad. It is bad, but that is, that is what sometimes people say. And I, I did what we call our medical boards, to really, to show I could. And then I went into psychiatry. And um, you know, we often tell students that uh, psychiatry is medicine for grown-ups. So I felt I'd grown up a bit more. And I've never, never regretted it. And I've greatly enjoyed a career in psychiatry. I think it's a great subject. And it's, I've had a very good time. And it's been very good to me. So I've, uh, you know, um, I think I made the right choices. But it wasn't inevitable. Interesting. Of course, it's a choice. It's yeah, of course. Um, and you don't always realize that you're going to end up um, in the way you are. But often people who know you could have predicted that you would end up doing the kind of things you should do. But we don't normally know ourselves very well. <laughs> Other That's people usually know us better than we do. You deal with mental health. It's such an important issue. We do. But remember, well, do we deal with mental health? That's in itself interesting because we deal with mental illness. We are part of medicine. Of we deal, sick. Yes, yeah. we deal with ill people, sick people, whatever. Mm. Everybody deals with mental health. Everybody does. And everyone has mental health in the same way that everyone has blood pressure. Yeah. And the determinants of mental health, I mean, you know, when my football team does well, I feel happier. When we lose at home, as we just have, I feel sad. But, so that's my mental health. But, yeah, but I'm not mentally ill. And, and it is important to remember psychiatry is part of medicine we deal with people who are generally ill, sick, unwell. Can but you share with us which was uh, the most difficult patient you Oh, gosh. Treated? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> I tried. No. Um, no. Um, I, yeah, I've had a, quite a few, um, and I've had some patients I see for a very, very long time, you know, 20, 30 years. And that's one thing in psychiatry. Some patients and our patients don't get better very much, and yeah. they will need support for many years to come. 
uh, and that's what I do. Uh, but the patients I see are, my particular field there is, is in the general hospital, so I actually work at King's College Hospital, uh, opposite the Maudsley, which is a big psychiatric centre, and I see people um, who may have turned up in A&E having tried to harm themselves, I see people having difficulty coping with physical illnesses, I see people with strange syndromes that are not very well understood, you mentioned chronic fatigue syndrome as one of those, that lie bit between medicine and psychiatry. So that's the kind of world I've worked in. I tend not to see people with the big severe mental illnesses, autism, schizophrenia, bipolar. Not I did when I was a trainee, but I don't very much now. Okay. And you deal with people who are older or maybe younger students? Both. Um, certainly, uh, um, we have a problem now with student mental health. Um, and I'm certainly involved in that, yes, trying to understand what the causes are, what we can do about it, partly because I work in a university, yeah, sure. and so students are what we see all the time, and partly because my, my actual academic trade is what we call epidemiology, which is a study of big populations, so, I don't, so that's my academic skill, is working with big numbers, doing big trials, we don't get out of bed for less than a thousand people, something like that, you know. So, thank you for, yeah, <laughs> for being just here. Telling you what's, <laughs> yes, it's a bit like public health, but it's a bit more than that. But, but um, you know, I don't do neuroscience, I don't do genetics, I don't do neuroimaging. I do the, the, the particular academic discipline I trained in was, was epidemiology. Yeah, and I know there is an increase of mental sickness, uh, not uh, only in students in general, but uh, especially in uh, women, right? Yeah. Students, like between 20 and 24, this is the age range? Yes. I mean, first of all, everyone always thinks that mental illness is getting commoner. Right back to the 19th century, always we think we are getting more anxious, we are getting more stressed, we are more rushed, we have less time for each other, the rates of insanity going up, more and more people, need, you know, this is a normal thing. We always think that. And until very recently, it's never been true. So the it's rates, no, the rates wow. of them, since we've had really good stats, say, let's say since the Second World War, the rates of the main mental disorders have remained incredibly stable hmm. in most places, certainly in uh, most developed countries and certainly in this country, they've not changed. And yet everyone thinks they always have. But we have in the last few years, for the first time, seen a true change, which is in quite a smallish group. It's of young women, uh, 16 to 24, which obviously half of them will be students. Um, and we've seen an increase in anxiety and depression, a true increase, not an increase in, in seeking help, which has soared. We all know that, we all know. There's more awareness now. Yeah, right? there's more awareness, people are more likely to present yeah. for help, the services are busier, that, that's yeah. obvious. But what isn't obvious is that there's been a true change in the disorder, but it's in this quite narrow age range, and unfortunately, it, it is just in females. In males, in that age, it stayed roughly around 10%. And do you know why? No, I don't know why, and, but everyone else does. Uh, and what so, do they think? Well, when you talk to audiences, and I'm sure now people are saying, oh, it's all social media, isn't it? And, and or invariably, particularly politicians, largely because they're at the age they've got young children, and both of our secretaries of state have had young children, and um, they're very concerned uh, that, that social media is having a bad influence on them. Um, so it's normal to, to, to ascribe this to social mm. media, and I'm, I'm quite sceptical about that myself, um, I think for two reasons. One is that there's a tendency we've had in society when some new 
method of communication comes in, right back to printing, television, radio, newspapers, whatever, to say the world is coming to an end. You know, you know this is terrible. And no one has any, you know, no one, sure. this is the end of family life. Yeah. We're all going to just watch the box in the corner. No one's going to yeah. go out and, to, and, you know, and in general, that doesn't come true. So we blame the medium for the message. Second is the research, which tends to show actually if there is an impact, it's not very big. Mm. Okay, it's not overall not very big. Nothing like as big as the negative impact of things like child abuse, bullying, uh, drugs, and so on, which have a big impact yeah, yeah. on children's mental health and young people's mental health. So if social media is negative, it's quite small. And of course, that should be set against, it's also got a lot of positive yeah, influences. Yeah, I do, I do. And also it mm. should affect also men, not only women. Correct? Yes, it's hard to understand. Well, I mean, some of it, the, the you know, obviously there are groups that are more vulnerable than others, and, and the, uh, it's the, the, you know, the, the, the pressure on young women, there's always been pressure on young women, by the way, it's not new. Yeah, but I, I, I'm thinking now that we are talking about that, mm. that actually uh, everything is changing for women. I mean, I'm happy about that, I'm a strong yes. feminist. <laughs> but because uh, before life was more binary, you know, you only had to find uh, the husband, you know, and be a housewife, a mother. Now we have a great variety of things, you know, that we can do. We can be everyone, you know, I mean, especially in developing countries. So maybe we feel, I don't know, more well, again, than in the past. You know, part of me is a historian and I wrote on the f phenomenon of neurasthenia in Victorian England. And one of the reasons that was um, ascribed to that was the increased pressure on women, that now they were going to the job market and now they were going to higher education yeah. for which they were not suited and they weren't able to cope with this. So that there's all, well, but that's what was said. I mean, I'm just saying that was what was wow. said for the so-called rise of then, it was neurasthenia and anxiety yeah. disorders. As, as our roles change, we, we, you know, we encounter different pressures, but that doesn't, that, because we've not really seen an, an increase in disorder, rarely is that directly linked to disorder. Okay. Now, obviously in certain individuals and in certain groups it will be, but as I say, just also remember all the advantages that come and what is, you know, we've done a lot of work on um, how do people cope with adversity in their lives? Not just soldiers, but people exposed to terrorism, uh, people being involved in accidents, crime, all of these things. What is the best thing to help us get over adversity life events, trauma, and everybody knows the best thing is what we call social networks. The bigger and better your social network, the better you cope with adversity. No one would deny that on the planet. Yeah. And then, you know, the Facebook film. Do you remember, do you remember the great Facebook film a few years ago? What was it called? Can you remember? Uh, no. It was Sorry. called The Social Network. Oh, that yeah, was, it's yeah. True. yeah, it's true. That was it, what it was called, yeah. because it was about creating the social network, which mm -hmm. is good for you. It's better to have social networks than not. So there's a lot of positive things. Yeah, no. There's a lot of positive things if you have learning disability or autism and find it difficult to directly communicate. Some people do better using social media than not. So there's, and, and also, you know, I wish we'd had social media when I was at university. I'd run more fun, I'd have more sex, I'm sure about that. <laughs> you know, my kids seem to have a better life because of social media than I had when I was at university. So I think it's yeah, more it of a... it's more difficult, it's yes, true, to find Exactly. I think it's a bit of a zero-sum game. And I think, and it's also not all the same, 
Um, you know, Facebook is very different to Instagram. Not that I use either, but I'm told that it is. I know you don't use any of them. I don't use those two. No, I use a bit of Twitter, but you know, my generation. I like generation. Instagram. I really yeah. don't like Facebook now. After you know, the, okay. uh, Zuckerberg is saying that he doesn't do the fact check, and after you know, yeah. all the mess with the Russians and Cambridge Analytica. But there are people. Who, there's some evidence that Instagram is can be a bit more damaging to mental health uh, than, for example, Facebook. But any, anyone of my age isn't Instagram really... Instagram more than Facebook. Yeah, apparently, yeah. But look, I'm of the age where I shouldn't be talking about social media at all, really. <laughs> but except to say that, number one, is that the evidence is that if there's a negative effect, it's, it's not very big. Second, there are advantages as well. And third, I do think we tend to jump to conclusions about new methods of communication before they kind of settle down and we understand the use and abuse of them. And I think there are still stronger determinants of the change in, in, in young people's mental health in, than social media. Interesting. But right now you're also doing research about this increase uh, of... Uh, um, uh, yes, yes, we are. We, yeah. We've got um, a network looking at changes in student mental health, actually. And, and in particular, trying to look for what are the kind of solutions that we should look to. And, and to give you an example, um, if, for example, as the evidence shows, also one of the determinants is loneliness. Yeah. We know that students feel a greater sense of loneliness. We know that um, it seems to be a bit harder to make the transition from home to university. One of the reasons being uh, a change in parental style. Um, great work, not our work at all, but wonderful work showing that the distance that children are allowed to play away from their parents has dramatically decreased in a generation. So how far a parent will allow a child to play out of sight has really reduced. How many children walk to school? Very, very few do. We call it the school run, but it's not a run at all. Yeah. It's a drive. Yeah. So, so it, you know, the, the change in parental style and the greater risk aversion, when we, we wanted our children to cycle to school, yeah. and it was a bit like, you know, we'd ask them to, to be abused, you know, that, that we were yeah. terrible parents. How, yeah. how could we do that? I'm not quite, but I'm not far off. We had to fill in forms and do risk assessments, you know, to let them cycle to school. And so there's a view that children f now find it a bit harder. Eventually, they've got to separate. Yeah, and they just find it a bit harder, and then they get lonely. Now, what's the solution? You could refer them all for counselling, but that would be, A, impossible. Yeah. And B, is so that... Extreme, maybe. And also, yeah, I think the solution would be to do what we might call social prescribing or to get people to do volunteering or to engage with each other or to join more, do more music. Um, you know, great work showing how singing in choirs helps your mental health, probably by increasing your social network. So there are lots of things we could do that are not professional solutions. Yeah. and don't involve talking to someone like me who is expensive. <laughs> but we're an expensive commodity. Yeah, Doctors, yeah, sure. psychologists are just as expensive, good social workers, even counsellors. These cost money. But the point is, there aren't enough of us. We, we can't counsel our way out of this problem. But we could sing our way out of this problem or do dramatics or sport. You know, put more money into sport facilities. Yeah. All of these things. I believe that sports really helps. Uh, yeah. With coping with stress, loneliness, especially if you do sports, you know, with a team. Yeah, so exactly. We yeah. make a really, really a good bonding with mm. the, the other teammates. And so one of the many things we've done wrong in education, one, one is the, the decrease in money that was put into school sports yeah. during my lifetime. And then the other thing we've done 
is by we are almost deliberately making children that we have a program called Stranger Danger in this country, mm -hmm. which is taking preschool children and educating them to be frightened of strangers because of the infinitesimally small risk of an attack, assault, or a murder by a stranger, which happens it's infinitesimally small, really, one or two a year. But we're making a generation of young children frightened of strangers. I can't think of a more oh. ridiculous policy. And I worry about that, because um, if you want to decrease trust and decrease networks and the ability to make friends, that's one way of doing it, is to make kids frightened of strangers. I think it would be mm. much better to teach them self-defense. So in case they will you know, have a problem, they will know how to defend themselves. You're telling me just like America now, you're going to arm yeah. all your children or what? No, come no, on. No, <laughs> arm is different. I'm not no, for okay. arms, but I, I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu <laughs> practitioner. Oh, really? So I think that uh, learning self-defense, uh, it's good for everyone. And getting good at something, that's the other thing we know we keep forgetting, is how do you make children resilient, even from the most terrible backgrounds? Mm -hmm. The children that cope and get resilient are because they've learned to be good at something. Might be maths or sport or whatever. Because the self-esteem yeah. is... Uh, yeah, and that we, you know, one of my predecessors many years ago showed that very conclusively. That's why we, almost why we send children to school, to get good at something. And I know that you're also working with the government, right? To mm -hmm. various Can you tell yeah. me more? What I've done in the last two years, I was asked by the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, people still remember her, poor thing, um, but she was interested, genuinely interested in severe mental illness, which most people aren't, but she was. And she um, just wanted a review of our mental health legislation. In other words, the, the how we do sometimes deprive people of their liberty because they have very severe mental illnesses and pose a risk to themselves or others. And our legislation was thought to be out of date. And it's very severe, right? Yes. I mean, it is, it's the only situation in the society where we deprive people of their liberty who have not done anything wrong, okay, who have not committed a crime, but still we have the legal power mm. to say no you're ill and you need treatment even though you are refusing it and therefore every 30 years or so we have to review these things because they change human rights change uh, every attitudes change and so i did that for two years um, working in whitehall with government um, with service users and patients with the big organizations with the ministry of justice police lots of people and it was fabulous yeah really enjoyed it but it was something i'd never done before and it wasn't a part of psychiatry i was familiar with and mm. what is your conclusion now, well sure? well i have 159 conclusions i can read them all out to you if you want <laughs> no, they're too many <laughs> i know i thought you might say that <laughs> yes and they're all perfect i'm um, sure <laughs> so you can read the report no but the conclusion was that the prime minister was right it was time to make some changes and, and you know why 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 do we have these laws it's it's a, it's to it's because we have um we have two things that are mutually opposing. We agree that in a decent democratic society, people are free to choose how they live their lives and to make decisions, even if they're bad decisions. Indeed, especially if they're bad yeah. decisions, that's your right. And, and in countries yeah. where you're not allowed to do that, you, you won't like those countries. No, they're not democracies. That's right. That's something else. But we also <laughs> agree that in a civilized democratic society, mm. we also, the state has to protect some of its most vulnerable. It's very young, it's very old, and also it's mentally ill, people with severe mental illness. Yeah. And again, if you go to a society that doesn't do that, 
and I've been to them, or it has laws but they're not used, you would not want to be severely ill in those societies. You mm. die, you know, awful things happen. And so managing these two contradictions is what we have to do. Okay, how do we respect autonomy, but at the same time protect the vulnerable? And it's a compromise. And so it's an important thing and we have to keep making sure that we're doing it the best we can, that we're doing it with the best safeguards we can, and also to ensure that people get the best treatment they can in the best surroundings. And I th we, we have fallen behind on that, and, and now we need to get up to speed again. And can, but we'll always have this balance that we have to make. And it's great that our politicians finally you know, have this attention. So. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, we, we've, there's been a change in, in, during my lifetime, particularly in the last decade or so. We've had... Um, a huge expansion in talking therapies, the biggest in the world uh, for those with depression, anxiety. Then we had a big campaign led by our younger royals, uh, really about kind of bringing mental illness, mental health into a normal, I suppose, I'm trying to avoid using the cliche, a conversation, but actually that is what they meant. Yeah. The way that we talk to each other, it should be easier to talk to about, talk about our emotions, yeah. your emotions, it should be easier to help someone at work who is crying in the corner, um, you know, people in visible distress. Um, it should be easier to have, as they say, those conversations. Especially with men, right? Because well, I know that men tend not to talk about this. Yes, that's certainly yeah. true, but I think, I think it's true both gender. But yes, yeah. you're right. Um, it, women do, do do that more, yeah. but even then, we, there were still yeah, we need barriers that. to overcome. Yeah. And, and I think that's been reasonably successful and there's been a small decrease in stigma in the population, not, not a huge decrease, I wouldn't believe it if there had been, but it is better, and, and also when I was doing the Mental Health Act review, the younger generation, my, my kids' generation, have very different attitudes towards mental disorder and distress than my generation did, um, and that's very obvious, and it was obvious in the way that um, our report was received, mm. even the very conservative things like the Daily Mail, and you would expect to be not on your side, welcomed it in a way that they hadn't 30 years ago. That's very interesting. So, yeah, so but, but we're not in a nirvana. Yeah. I mean, let's not, yeah. let's not pretend that the stigma of mental illness has gone away, that everything is great, we still don't have the same resources, our hospitals still look pretty awful compared to the wonderful new cancer hospitals we have on the other side of the road. We've still got a long way to go, but it's, it is better now than it was 30 years ago. No, absolutely. But as you were telling me before, it, it's good actually that someone knows that uh, he can tell his friend or her friend uh, if, if they think they're having a bad moment, yeah. uh, if they have a suicidal thought. So it's good to talk about yes, that. Yes, it is definitely good to talk. And But also, like everything else, we can also go too far. I mean, one of the things that may have happened in student mental health is that we may have pushed too far this, the business of what we call mental health awareness weeks. The data now shows most people with mental disorders are aware that they do have mental disorders. That's not the reason they're not seeking help. They're not seeking help because they either feel they can manage themselves, they feel that our services aren't good enough, and they're not untrue in that. So, uh, um, but that it's not about that they don't know they have a problem, okay, unless they're drinking. It does happen with drinking. Oh, yeah? Yes, there's still quite a big gap between people who clearly do have alcohol problems and people who say that they do. Who know that they do, but but in in general mental health, most people are aware that they have a problem, and that's not so. Just raising awareness will not of itself solve that problem.
Yeah, so we need also different type of campaigns now. I think we do. Um, yes, I think we do. I think we've we've done a, we've done has gone quite a long way with awareness. I think now it's about teaching skills, how to manage, mm -hmm. how to manage mental health problems, both yourself and with others, um, and in particular, um, how you get teachers and how you get managers and sergeants in the police or corporals in the army, the next person above you in the hierarchy, some of the best things you can do is very quickly give them simple skills about how to talk to someone who's obviously distressed. And, and that's the thing we've been doing with the army now for some time. Because we know that the old way of doing things, so you know, when you had a trauma, um, you were exposed to you know, something bad had happened in your military life or whatever mm -hmm. in your life, Far too often we would send in what we called counsellors to immediately on the scene when there was still smoke and battle to talk to you, say, so how was it for you, how do you feel, etc. This was called psychological debriefing, popular all around the world. And we were one of the groups that showed not only did that not work, it actually made you worse. It actually oh. increased your risk of subsequent breakdown. So we've had to move away from that too early intervention, the professionalisation of distress, that was, didn't work. Mm. I didn't know. Yeah, lots of people don't know, but it's very clear um, that actually, guess what you do need when you've had a really traumatic event. You, there was a terrorist incident recently in London, yeah. as you know. Uh, yeah, um, but what did those people first need? Well, they needed security, information, what happened, and they needed communication. And the best thing you can do for them is to give them a working mobile. So nowadays, that's what we do. We bring in um, lots of uh, chargers and working mobiles because this is the time. You don't need to talk to me. You've never met me before. You need to talk to your family and friends. And when we had the London bombs some years ago, we showed that people who couldn't make contact with their family and friends on the day were more anxious. Now, that's not a surprise, okay? You think, well, you know. No, it makes total sense. Yeah, I know, it makes but it's so sense. obvious. Yeah, it's you so shouldn't obvious. bother it's to true. do research, should yeah. you? But what we showed was six months later, they were still more anxious. That was interesting. And therefore, yeah, allowing them to communicate immediately with their own friends, their family, whatever, whoever they wanted to, their vicar, it didn't matter. But that was far better than getting a total stranger to say, so how are you, what happened, tell me what it was, you know, all that kind of yeah. stuff, and to take you through something that actually was really very traumatic. Now is not the time, we can wait. So that was quite a big change, actually. That's one of the nicer pieces of research we did. Wow. So we definitely need more psychiatry in our lives and more, more <laughs> psychiatrists telling us, you know, how to cope with this uh, difficult well, moment uh, that everyone can have in our lives. No, you, no, you don't. No, you need more psychiatrists telling you. The telling policies, new yeah, policies. Yeah, new, new policies, which are actually, mm. the policy is that people are more resilient than we think. And the best thing they can do is mobilize their own social resources. And then later, I like this. later, okay. then those who've not got better, because you know, after these terrible events, everyone feels appalling. No one can sleep. They're all shaking. They're all in a bad yeah. way. That's they clearly normal. don't need help. They just need yeah. time. Yeah. Then if a certain amount of time later, they're still not better, then, yeah, then we can do things. So, but the first thing we need is us to tell you know, politicians who want to leap in and they want to, we must do something. We've seen it on the TV screens. We must help. And you say, no, no, people help themselves. You must facilitate it. You must ensure they have security, that they have information. That's the biggest thing they need. 
you know, what's happened, who yeah. did it, yeah, sure. and communication. And With the beloved yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, some people have already got mental health problems, they're going to need quicker help, and some people literally don't have any social networks, and they probably need help. But basically, we need to trust ordinary people a bit more than we do. No, I, I really like this conversation because I always thought that life is all about love, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and you can love your, your children, your friends, you know, your parents, your mm. family. But uh, now that I'm talking to you, I understand it's even more important, you know, so uh, yeah. the love and that surrounds us and keeps us healthy. And, uh, but it's all, and it's also about confidence. It's mm. also about you making the choice of when you want to talk about things to, at a time and a place mm. and to a person of your choosing. So if I did want to see a professional, I think I might want to see my GP, my general practitioner, or maybe my priest or my padre, as they say mm. in the military. On the whole, I'd like to see someone who knew me before and will know me after, not a stranger who I'll only see once. And that's unnatural and not what is needed. Um, so as I say, one of the great things about research is that we don't make policy, but we give the information to those who do. And, and it's nice when they actually, when you actually see it acted on, you know, you feel really good. I feel I'm really sure. good about it. You think, yeah. we did that. That's so, really cool. Yeah, mm. I hope our prime minister will listen <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, yes, well. <laughs> to you and to your colleagues more. But uh, what about terrorists? Can I ask you? Because, uh, you know, I always think, how can it be possible, you know, to become a terrorist? Seriously, I, I can't understand how a human being can be so mean without human beings. What, well, what do you know about them? I know a bit about it, because, mm -hmm. say, we do do a lot of work on emergency preparedness and population responses. So that means inevitably, because I'm a scientist, I do get asked those kind of questions. I think, first of all, the people who you need to talk to are political scientists, historians, etc. Mm -hmm. Second, the view that some you know, ministers sometimes do say under pressure, uh, one f famous prime minister did that, said, well, they're obvious, these people are mad. Or, or Donald Trump says yeah. that. Well, the one thing then, we know... eventually we can say yes, <laughs> about Donald Trump. But, well, OK, <laughs> we'll come on to Donald Trump later. <laughs> but is actually, in general, that's not true. Yeah. And indeed, they, they, they are not uh, mentally ill. And particularly where we're dealing with organized terrorist networks like the IRA or whatever, they actually, um, uh, they are actively not mentally ill. And indeed, most of organized terrorist networks actually exclude people with mental health problems um, because they don't think they're reliable, they think they're security risks, they're not of high status, they're not, you know, they don't, you know, they're not, the, they're not the right people for the message. And that's the same in the Middle East, it was the same in Ireland. So organized terrorists um, usually will avoid people with overt mental illness. The, where there is mental illness is in what I, the, the word often uses lone wolves. These are people who just act on their own, who are disaffected and disturbed um, in different ways. And they're usually lone, they're on their own, not part of a network. So these ones, they, they might have yes. some kind of a health Yes, okay. there, there might be some health. There's a higher rate of a mental disorder in that group. But the, uh, and usually, you know, there's a limit to what you can do on your own. Uh, but the organized terrorist organizations, and certainly I have met some, 
and oh, there's you met some. I well, met one or some. I mean, mm. they if they've committed a terrible offence, they get seen by a psychiatrist. It's part of our legal system. And do they, and, do they um, show some kind of empathy or remorse for what they did? Or they no, no, they don't do that. No, they're but happy they're, about that. Well, I don't know. They're happy, but they're some of the sanest people I've ever met. I have to be honest with you. Some of them are, and they're not mentally ill at all. And um, it's it's just a misnomer to say they are. Yeah. It, it doesn't help. I understand completely, but I think mm. people, they, they don't want to know that you can be completely normal and, and mentally healthy and, and also be such a horrible well, human being, you know, I think. Well, you know, again, we don't want to it, know that's that. a question for mm. political scientists and, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, as you know, and many of, many of them will be heroes in their local communities, if not to you and me, but they will, there'll be a community to which they are, and I think it's wrong to pretend that that's not the case. But it's not the job of psychiatry. It's the, it's about politics. It's about history. It's about a little bit religion, maybe. But it's a not. Lot about religion. I think it's more about politics in in my experience yeah, of but some of them. But politics mm. they use religions. I mean, if you look maybe. at history, mm. and uh, I, I mean, yeah. uh, it's horrible. You know, ma mankind did a lot of wars only because of religion. What I don't like is when politicians or commentators jump to the conclusion because someone's done a terrible thing. Uh, as has happened in London recently, then, well, they must be mad. I think it's unhelpful, it's untrue, and it's also quite bad for people with, you know, severe mental illness to have themselves compared to terrorists. And of course, the the one thing, you know, I got slightly well known for was when, when, during, when, well, during, when Mr. Trump became president, we used to get a request every day to comment. Every day. <laughs> yeah, all the time, Jones say, so, you know, what, what is Trump mentally ill? What yeah, disorder do you think he has? I understand why he asked you. Yes. <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah. And, and, What's and, your answer? Well, the answer was, we, we, our policy was not to get involved in a discussion comparing Trump with people with mental illness, not because we wanted to protect Mr. Trump, but because we wanted to protect people with mental illness. <laughs> it's hard enough to have a mental illness without being compared to the President of the United States. Yeah, and I we agree had to, with you. And we had to remind people that, you know, being racist or misogynist, etc., are not features of mental disorder. Yeah. So just say what you think about him, but not in the language of psychiatry, because it's offensive to those who do have mental disorders. Yeah. And um, that's still my view. Thank you for this message. It's yes, very clear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you. Even though now that we were talking about this, I remember that even for Hitler, they they were looking yes. uh, you know, uh, and were asking if he was uh, mentally ill. Yes. What do What do you know about this? Yes. Oh, it's a good question. I mean, you know, um, they did, and um, there was quite a lot written of psychological profiles of Hitler including by one of my predecessors, very famously wrote in The Lancet, a psychiatric, psychoanalytic account of Hitler. Reading it now, it's a bit toe-curdling, it's rather embarrassing, um, and I, I don't think it helps at all. Um, okay. And then you have, you know, if you look at the early biographies of Hitler, there was this thing going around that um, Hitler was anti-Semitic because his mother, to whom he was attached, because his father was a bully, and um, his mother uh, died quite early on, uh, of the negligence of a Jewish doctor. And this somehow had got into the folklore quite early on. And it took, I think it was Ian Kershaw or whatever, who actually worked, did the proper research and showed it was just untrue. <laughs> it was due to a bad doctor, but they weren't Jewish. Yeah, right. And that's nothing to do with Hitler's anti-Semitism, which was about politics. Yeah. So about you can, power, yeah. yeah. Money, so, power. Yeah, so you can go yeah. too far in, in using psychiatry, you know, to analyze 
the characters of people and great events. And, and many of them read, whereas you know, a really good historian assessing Hitler is, is, is often is very insightful. Some of the psychiatric assessments now are really quite embarrassing. And I remember one of, from America, the FBI, you know, looked at, and they asked a bunch of psychiatrists to say, what would Saddam Hussein do after the defeat of Iraq? Or what would, I think it was David Koresh at the siege of Waco. Mm -hmm. And they, they said very clearly, well, Koresh, he will obviously give himself up and Saddam will certainly commit suicide. And it was obviously the other way around, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> they, they didn't distinguish themselves, no. Yeah, so you can't really predict. <laughs> I think it, predicting individuals in those circumstances, you know, everybody, lots of people can have insights, but it's certainly not unique. Psychiatrists are not the only people who can make predictions, and most predictions are often wrong yeah. in those circumstances. So be careful, I think would be our advice. Be careful. Simon, what do you think that uh, every person in his life or her life uh, uh, sees some kind of mental problem or maybe the majority of people they don't have it uh, and, and I, I think about my circle you know like the ones who are completely sane you know mentally healthy you know, sane, and the one who are maybe a little bit crazy you know and have problems but uh, from my point of view I think maybe you know people they can go through difficult period in their lives so even yeah. one who is completely fine today eventually could have uh, you know some issues. Well you have to remember that mental health mental illness lies on a dimension has indeed do most things in medicine, to be honest. Blood pressure is on a dimension, all sorts of things are. Right. Even cancer is on a dimension. And what we're discussing is where do you draw the line? Yeah. And we know that everyone is sad at parts of their lives and everyone is anxious in certain circumstances. Yeah. But eventually you can become severely depressed where it's probably a good idea to get help. But where is that line is negotiable. And it changes according to what we think, uh, society thinks, etc. It can go one way, it can go the other. Similarly, when we talk about, you know, now we talk about autism as a disorder, but yeah. where, does, where does just being a bit odd, a bit quirky, not great at relationships, whatever, which a lot of us are part of the time, where does that merge into a disorder? Well, you know, we don't have a test to decide. Um, it, it, it's socially determined and it moves around. So I think that's the first thing. Second is people change. And we maybe the, the classic statistic is one in four of us will have had a mental disorder a part of our lives. Probably one in four. That's the best statistic. But remember, most of them, mm. many of them will be relatively short-lived and uh, slightly predictable, perhaps. That's the second thing. Uh, and the third thing to remember is one thing we do know is all of us will sooner or later get exposed to a major traumatic event. So between the ages of about 18 and 45, you get a major life event about once every four or five years. You get a minor life event about four times a year. So something, no one lives a life free from trauma. Sure. Nobody. And, and these traumas can trigger something. Yes, they can mind. sometimes and sometimes they don't. And then mm. it depends upon exactly what is the trauma. Then it depends a bit on you, your background, even your genetics, but also your upbringing, education, uh, your relationships, going back to our old friend, the social network, yeah. how you then manage afterwards, whether you have a job or not, all sorts of these things all come into play. And the one thing we can say about mental disorders is, you know, repeat after me, they are always multifactorial. There's always a lot of reasons. And again, not unique to psychiatry. When you have a heart attack, you know, a heart attack is a heart attack. 
uh, but it can be due to a combination of genes, blood pressure, diet, stress, sure. all sorts of things. And so, so it is with mental disorders. And so you can have a major depression, but it can result from, and it not only can, invariably will result from a lot of different factors. There's never, never just one thing. And now there is also a great attention about your gut bacteria, I heard, you know, that's so dependent on your, your you know, lifestyle, how do you eat, how are your bacteria, so this can trigger depression. I heard that. I mean, yes, I, I don't know much about that, I'll be honest with you. Um, I'm always slightly sceptical, just because I'm just slightly sceptical, I'm that kind of person. Your nature. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm a, we call it a boring boffin, but that's on, if you're a researcher, your job is to be sceptical about these things because they come and go, and um, in some of the areas I've worked, I've heard maybe a hundred different theories about particular illnesses. Most of them don't don't come to much, and um, and they're more about uh, fads and health concerns. They're more about contemporary concerns, you know, and particularly when you get on issues like Wi-Fi illness or people are sensitive to their mobile phones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Uh, we know that people aren't, but you know, it comes and then it goes. But actually yeah. they say the same about chronic fatigue and you are the expert. So tell me more about uh, how can we understand, how can we uh, understand that well, you're facing chronic fatigue? Well, there's two things here. One is if we're talking about chronic fatigue, that's, it's perfectly fine to talk about all the factors that make people tired. But what you may be talking about is a particular illness called chronic fatigue syndrome, yeah. or here it's called ME, myotic encephalomyelitis, which is a much more controversial topic and a more difficult topic. But in terms of chronic fatigue, yes, it's caused by lots of different things, um, some medical, some psychiatric, some social, some lifestyle, all of these things, and it's very, very common. 30% of women, 20% of men will report that they have chronic fatigue at this moment in time. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it's common. Yeah. I mean, headaches commoner yeah. actually, but mm. when you look at symptoms in the population, we're talking about symptoms in uh, most developed countries, uh, better off countries, headache is the commonest symptom. Fatigue yeah. is often number two. Um, so, Interesting. yeah, and, and what it doesn't usually. Well, the syndrome is mm. more controversial, and I think I'd just say that we don't know what the causes are, but during my career, maybe. Oh, Dozens of things have been suggested, but not proven. Um, we do know that uh, uh, accompanying CFS can be sometimes uh, psychiatric problems as well, such as depression or anxiety can happen. And we also know at the moment that some of the uh, treatments that myself and colleagues have developed, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, graded exercise therapy, seem still to be um, useful. Uh, and certainly nothing yet has been proven to be better. But all of the things I've said will annoy some people watching this podcast. But I think the evidence is there, um, but we would like there to be better treatments and no doubt as years pass, they will be. Um, but people then get upset that they think that because I'm a psychiatrist, the mere fact that I'm speaking about this means that I think it's all in your mind, all in your head, imaginary, etc., And that I have to say is completely untrue. But it is a view that some people have that the that psychiatry is about the, you know, about disorders that don't exist, and I think that's a 
massive misunderstanding. Yeah, also yeah. very unfair to people with depression, schizophrenia, autism, etc. But there is some prejudice still there. Nowadays, uh, what are you devoting your attention more to? The, the British, uh, the, the army, right? Yes, I'm, we're still doing the military research, which mm -hmm. has been fabulous. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and there's still a lot to do. Um, we're still looking at the long-term consequences of the, this is, we're talking about our troops, obviously, um, of, of deployment to Iraq, Afghanistan. We're looking at what future risks will be. We're looking at how do we, um, we work with families. We're looking at how do you, maintain health protection in the military. We're looking, we're looking particularly at, the, at some of the lesser talked about consequences of deployment. Uh, for example, we've looked at crime and violence um, in, in people who have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. When they come back or when they're there? No, when they come back. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the purpose of finally military is the controlled use of violence. That's yeah. what an army is. Mm -hmm. You know, ever since 1648, where the state seeks to control violence by creating armies. But what we're more interested in, I have to be honest, is what happens when people come back. And, and what happens? Well, what we've done is, remember I mentioned that I do big studies with lots of big populations. So our study is of a, a large proportion of those who served in Iraq, Afghanistan. And one thing we managed to do was to link um, their medical and health data that we have with the criminal records data that um, the Home Office and police have. So we were able to see how many have committed offences, yeah. okay? And most people, particularly if they live near a military garrison, will know that not all our soldiers are Sir Lancelot and Sir Galahad. Some of them are behave badly, particularly when they drink. And what we showed, however, was overall, those who joined the armed forces had a lower risk mm -hmm. of getting any criminal conviction than those who hadn't. So they were lower. There were less of them in prison. It was well, it was a standard thing with the media to say, scandal of all these number of veterans in prison. Yeah. But actually, statistically, you were less likely okay. to go to prison if you served in the armed forces mm -hmm. and if you hadn't, which becomes even more remarkable when you think about where do we recruit our military from? Or, and the same is true in America and many other places with a small military force we tend to recruit from disadvantaged communities. Um, so from some of the more rundown places in Britain with high unemployment rates, and we tend to, you know, we over-recruit from those places. In that places we have higher rates of yes. violence. So we are recruiting people <laughs> overall who statistically have a lower uh, educational level, more likely to come from families with problems, and indeed are more likely to have already committed some offences before they join. So the fact that in their lifetime, joining the service is associated with a reduction means that overall, joining the military was good for them. Yeah, it teaches them discipline, yes, I guess. They, they had better so that, life yeah. chances. Their life chances improved as a result of military service. And I think many people listen and say, yes, I can understand that. They got a job, they got discipline, they got mates, they got pride, but they, for you they got skills. All of that's great. However, there's always a sting in the tail, or there always is. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm -hmm. The one thing that went up was violence. And when they come back from deployment, they're more likely to be violent and to be convicted of violence. So we also made them more violent but only if they'd been in a combat role. So if they'd gone and deployed and been in combat, then they were better citizens, but unfortunately had an increase, and it wasn't small, 
in the rate of violence. So nothing is without its consequences. I understand. So what we could do in order to prevent this? Well, we do something? well obviously one thing was we never go to war, we never send anyone to war. But remember, if we abolish the military, we would need more prisons, not less, because overall their rate of offending went down. But we would reduce violent offending, yes. Um, but I think that's unlikely to happen. Um, the thing we can probably intervene in the best is that the violence was mediated by alcohol and I'm afraid the British Armed Forces are probably the world's best drinkers. Yeah. If there was an Olympic Games between all the militaries of the world for drinking, I think we would probably get the gold medal. I think we probably would. We have high rates of drinking and PTSD, post-traumatic mm. stress disorder. So we can still mediate it by trying to reduce the level of harmful drinking, we've had some success, and to treat mental illness better and quicker than we have in the past. That probably would be the best way, seeing as it's, you know, we are, probably we do need an, I, I, I'm not a pacifist, <laughs> I believe we should have an armed force, and if we're gonna have an armed force, we need to use them. And if we use them, you know, just as some will come back with physical injury, some will come back with mental injury, you cannot separate the two. Yeah, but then we shouldn't forget them, so we should help them. That's the point. Well, I think, no? well, I don't think anyone would, well, probably some people would. I don't think anyone would dispute that at all. And, um, and I'm very respectful towards the people. I don't always like them. Some of them are quite unpleasant people, by the way. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is we have both a too heroic view of them. So we call them all heroes, but they're not. And they themselves will tell you that. They don't like being called heroes at all the ones who won the Victoria Cross or a big honor, sure, some are, but most aren't. And they would not like that either. They would like to be considered as professionals. And then suddenly we call them all victims and they're not victims either, okay? And, they, and if we do that, then they make it, we made it hard for them to get jobs. And actually they're extremely employable and most of them do get jobs and they're very good on the job market. They've learned some um, skills, they've definitely learned skills. There are many of them have got much more of an education in the armed forces than they ever got at school. And they come out after eight, 10 years, you know, clearly with better life chances um, and look, look back with, with, with great affection on their time in the military. So we have um, an unfortunate way of looking at the forces. We see them as heroes or as victims. The majority are neither heroes nor victims, but they're actually perfectly good citizens who, you know, it's okay to marry and employ. That's um, good. Yeah. That's well, good in America, you see actually people get quite frightened by their soldiers. That they, yeah. The kind of Vietnam veteran stereotype has, has persisted. They're seen much more as victims. They're seen much more likely to be seen as depressed, demoralized, drug addicted, dangerous, etc. And we need to avoid those stereotypes because they're not helpful. Yeah, but any stereotype is helpful, seriously. Yeah, true. Yeah. But so you ask about veterans and, uh, mm. and what the work we do is first of all, to get the figures right, to get it into proportion. Mm. Most of the population think that everyone is, or nearly everyone, two thirds of those who served in Iraq, Afghanistan, come back with PTSD. It's about 5% much much lower than the population only five percent mm, well it's five percent of it's quite a lot actually when you think of the numbers but it isn't 65 yeah but I, I thought it was more yeah no, it's true no saying. it isn't no and the very highest rates you get of those in combat who've left the service veterans is 15 percent. that's the highest and that's in a small group okay. so the average is five percent nothing like what people think so it's important I mean, it's important that we can you know, look after those and get services, better services quicker. But we mustn't, 
we've got to keep a full sense of, of, of proportion as to what the problems are. Drinking is much more common. Drinking is a huge problem. Yeah. It's a big problem, yes, it is. It's more common than PTSD, does more harm in, in the sense yeah. of um, all sorts of problems, yeah. But we don't have campaign against drinking. Well, we do, but you wouldn't know so much about it um, be because we tend to focus on the, you know, the, the panorama programs, the journalist programs, the newspapers. They, they tend to focus on, I think, the more palatable. You know, PTSD is, is a more understandable thing. We, we don't focus on the drinking as much as we probably should, and we certainly don't focus on this increase in violence that I've talked about. Thank you, Simon. Mm. It's such a, an interesting conversation with you. <laughs> I think we could go on like one hour or more, <laughs> but uh, I think this is the time for the final five. I oh, always okay. ask Do you? <laughs> the oh, five final questions. I to should everyone. have read your emails better then, shouldn't <laughs> yeah, I? I actually, so. no, I didn't mention that. Oh, you didn't at all? Okay, it's not just me then. No, it has to be a surprise. Try to oh, answer good. as quick as you can. This, but is, uh, this is what normally brings politicians down, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. when they don't know the price of a pint of milk or yeah, something. No, <laughs> you will be fine for sure. <laughs> okay. So let's start with this one. Um, which is the, the trait of your persona or the thing that people wouldn't know about you just by looking at you? Um, w uh, just by looking at me? Yeah. Um, well, what people do know about, by just looking at me, I, I used to be mistaken for a famous tennis player. Oh. <laughs> yes, very much. I used to be very much mistaken for Which tennis one? player. I used to be. I used to really look like John McEnroe. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. And many, many years ago, I got him into trouble. I think I can finally admit this because it's now about thirty years ago. When I was younger, I really did look like his double. And one day, I was on a skiing holiday in Val d'Isère when I was a junior doctor. And the word got round that McEnroe had been skiing in the resort. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was me. You'd hear on the resort radio, and it was obviously me. And um, we used to walk into bars and I would pretend to McEnroe, and everyone would go, oh, anyway. <laughs> Many months later, mm. there was a news item that McEnroe had been due to play in a, in a pro-am tournament in Miami, mm. but he hadn't gone and he'd said he'd been ill, but actually he'd been skiing in Val d'Isère. And so he'd been fined. And um, I knew that was me. And, um, and he denied <laughs> it, appealed and lost. So I thought I should write to him. And I thought, no, I better not actually. Oh my no. God, Simon, so, you're nutty. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I was mistaken for John McEnroe when I was younger. Okay. That's true. Yep. If you were a superhero, which would be your superpower? Um, I, my super, I don't know. I'm not sure it's a superpower. I think I would still quite like to have uh, been a stand-up comic. Is that a superpower, being, being, very, being able to do stand-up uh, comedy? Does that I'm, count? I'm not really sure, but uh, if you want to be uh, super funny with everyone in this planet, maybe no, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, again, yeah, I don't, I don't watch those uh, superhero films, actually. What, what, what's the alternatives? What choices have I got? <laughs> oh, my God, there are many, many. Oh, well, uh, okay. I, I personally think controlling people's minds, but no one no, says that, that, that to me all least, the time. That would be yeah, the least. That would be the problem. Because then I'd be blamed for even more things that people do than <laughs> I am are. already. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the last superpower I'd like is to be able to control or read people's minds. People think that we do that as the psychiatrists, but I promise you we don't. <laughs> I wish we did. Yeah, in fact, yeah. maybe one day. No, no. 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 <laughs> Which is your uh, anim spirit animal? Um, <laughs> when I was a child, we had tortoises, and I still quite like tortoises. They, as I say, we're the doctors that don't run. Okay, and I like the idea we walk slowly thinking about what we're going to do. So actually, I still think it taught us, yeah. Okay. Thought, thoughtful, but never running. 
Yeah, okay. things have gone really bad in my job if I have to run. <laughs> so I think a slow moving, but wise tortoise. I like that. Yeah. And what did you learn from your last relationship? I'm, I'm sure you are married since like maybe 50 years or so, <laughs> try to think. Well, I think it's, um, well, I think it, not so much from my life, but from everything really. My boss uh, for many years, Professor Robin Murray, who I adore, um, he was great and never giving advice. So the first never give advice, but he only once gave advice. And his advice was, when in doubt, grovel. When in doubt? <laughs> grovel. Okay. So grovel means, you know, apologize profusely, but do more than that, grovel. So I think, I think what I've learned is when in doubt, grovel. That's a good point, yeah. I like that. And the last one, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> um, what's the purpose of life is not to be bored. I guess that's what I think it is. So the purpose of life is just not to be bored. So always do something that's interesting. Thank you, Simon. It was a pleasure to have you here in well, our Unleashed podcast. Yeah. And I hope eventually one day you could come back and tell us about your research. I love to, Paul. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to meet you. And uh, thank, thank you for putting up with me and, and our dog, if the dog ever appeared yeah, in shot. I, I love your dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I love animals. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for watching Unleash the Game Changers. I hope uh, you have been inspired by our conversation. Please let me know what do you think about, let me know who do you think I might interview the next time. And don't forget to subscribe and to share via all your social media with your friends. Thank you and see you next time. Bye.